All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we had, it was Mother's Day, and we had a pretty emotional service, and a lot of, a lot of good sharing, and uh, you know, I thought, well, how, how am I going to follow that? That's going to be a tough one to follow. And that's what Brady said, too. He said he was thinking about speaking this week, but he didn't really think he could follow that, so, <laughs> so Drew Butera could do it. Um, but I want to kind of follow, uh, or maybe uh, compliment what we talked about last week. I want to talk today about hope. Hope. What is hope? Where do we get hope? And what happens if we have no hope or the wrong hope? So if you have your Bible with you, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter is close to the end. It's uh, about four Four books from the end. Revelations is the last book. Revelation and then the Johns are right before that and then Peter's. First Peter chapter 1. And one thing Peter talks a lot about in this letter is hope. Hope. He's writing to Christians who are scattered abroad throughout the Roman Empire. And so as I was preparing this, I thought, well, why, is it, why does Peter talk so much about hope? Why is that important? Well, in July of 64 AD, which is about 30 years after Christ was crucified, uh, there, a huge fire occurred in Rome. So I know you've all heard Nero fiddled while Rome burned, right? Well, he didn't really have a fiddle. He had a lyre, but uh, that's the saying we have. So Rome burned. The city of Rome caught on fire. It started, and you know, we always think of Rome, we think of the Colosseum and its city made out of all stone. Well, it wasn't. Most of the structures were made out of wood. And it started uh, in the little shops that were outside the Circus Maximus, and it spread through the whole city. There are 14 districts in the city. Ten of them were affected. Four of them were completely destroyed. The fire burned for seven days. Thousands of people were killed. And uh, while the fire was going, bands of roving bands of thugs were going around with torches and where people were trying to put out the fire they would like threaten them or beat them stop them from putting out the fire and where the fire went out they would take torches and light it again so like I said this fire went for about a week and when it was over the people the Roman people started blaming Nero for the fire Nero had ambitions to to you know, build great things to his own glory. So the people started blaming Nero. Well, Nero needed a scapegoat, so he decided to blame it on this, uh, what they thought was a kind of strange, far-out Jewish sect called the Christians. So uh, Nero said that it was the Christians who started the fire, and it really was easy because the Roman people didn't understand the Christians. They thought they were kind of weird. They called them atheists, because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. So they didn't hold Caesar to be God, so they were called atheists, even though they had their own God that they believed in, the God of the Bible. Uh, they had these things called love feasts, where they would eat some guy's body and drink his blood. And so the, the, they were being depicted as having these uh, wild cannibalistic orgies. So people uh, who didn't know Christians and weren't familiar with what was really going on fed into these rumors. And a huge persecution started after this under Nero. And Nero would um, 
take Christians and wrap them, tie, sew them into animal skins, and then throw them to the wild beasts, to bears and dogs and lions. Um, he would roll them in pitch or tar and tie them to a stake and use them to light his garden parties at night. And he crucified probably thousands of Christians out in public on crosses. So all this was going on, this horrible persecution, and it spread through the whole Roman Empire. It was pretty much worldwide in the known world, which was the Roman Empire. Shortly after this started, Peter wrote the book of 1 Peter. So therefore, hope was an important topic and this is what he says. Let's start in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not, you do not see him now, you believe in him, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter gives his introduction, the first couple of verses there, where he says who it's to, and then he kind of breaks into this um, almost uh, doxology of praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's given us a new birth into a living hope. Brady said I could have a glass of water up here if I needed water. I told him I'd kick it over. <laughs> so the first thing we see that hope comes from the new birth. If you don't have the new birth, you don't have hope. Jesus told Nicodemus, and who was Nicodemus? He was a teacher of the Jews. He was maybe the... Uh, most respected teacher of the Jews in Israel at Jesus' time, Jesus told him, you must be born again. Unless a person is born again, they can never see the kingdom of heaven. So our hope starts with the new birth. We can't, there's no hope in works. We can't work our way to heaven. We can't be good enough uh, to satisfy God it's holy, God's holiness and his wrath and anger. Uh, God cannot just overlook sin. We have to have our sins forgiven and be born again. And that's where hope comes from. If you've never been born again, you, you don't have any hope after this life. All right, so it comes from the new birth. And then he says it's into a living hope. So I want to talk a little bit about what hope is in the Bible. Now, since we've been talking about the Royals a little bit, uh, we, this is the way we usually use hope. I hope the Royals win today. How many of you are certain that the Royals are going to win today? <laughs> All right, we've got a couple of diehard fans. <laughs> uh, 
when we say I hope, maybe we'll say I hope uh, I get a better job. I hope I get an A on my next test. I hope whatever. I hope I get a raise. We don't really, we're not confident about those. That's just kind of a wish. I wish this would happen. But that's not what the Bible means at all by hope. The living hope is certain. It's confidence in something that will happen. It's not a hope so, it's a no so. We know this is going to happen. And hope throughout the Bible, you can see it throughout the Bible, even where uh, the word hope is not specifically used. You just watch, like read the lives of the people in the Old Testament, and you can see the hope they had. Hope in the Bible always has an expectation of the future with the idea of counting upon. In other words, it's certain. You can count upon it. It's the future. It doesn't necessarily apply to right now. But it's a trust in God and that we wait patiently for what's coming. And hope, biblical hope does not depend on a specific outcome of the events here on earth. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In Daniel chapter 3, we have the story of what we call the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, and so King Nebuchadnezzar builds this uh, huge statue of himself, and he has a big band, and when the band plays, everyone has to kneel down and worship the statue. So the, the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, say, well, we're not going to bow down. So the music plays, everybody bows down, and these three guys are just standing there. So uh, uh, as always happens, there's a snitch around. He goes and tells the king, Hey, they're, they're not bowing down. So the, Nebuchadnezzar calls them in to where he's at and says, we're going to have the music play again. And when the music plays, you bow down and worship the statue. Well, their, their answer to him is a perfect example of biblical hope. Daniel chapter 3, this is what they say to him in verse 16. He tells them if you don't worship, you'll be thrown, excuse me, immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That's biblical hope. You know, I might die in this fire today, but I know that God can deliver me, and ultimately he's going to deliver me, and I'm not going to worship your gods. Because I know there's some, if I die now, there's something after for me, that God will take care of me. And... We might think of that as faith, which it is. Faith and hope always go together. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is being sure of what we hope for. So it's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So faith and hope always go together. What is our hope? What are we hoping for? Colossians 1.27 says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. 
That's, what, that's where our hope comes from. That's the only hope we have for glory. Christ in us, which again comes from the new birth. When we're born again, Christ comes and lives in our lives, lives in our hearts. That's a hope of glory. Uh, we're also hoping for the return of Christ. Titus 2.13 says that we're waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Titus 1.2 says that the hope of eternal life comes from God. So we're hoping for eternal life. We're hoping for a, to be someday resurrected and live on this earth, in the new, new earth, in the new heavens with Jesus Christ. That's our hope, eternal life with God. And, all right, Peter says it's a living hope. It's alive, it's certain, it's sure. It's not a dead hope or a false hope. The Bible does talk about false hope. So you can have hope. Uh, it's been said that, you know, people can't go on without hope. Uh, prisoners of war, the people who give up hope are the ones who die. Uh, someone wrote a book, I can't remember the guy's name or the name of the book, but he did a study on hope in illness and how people who have hope uh, heal better and live longer and have a much better prognosis. But I'm talking about hope that goes beyond this life. And again, we can have the wrong kind of hope. The Bible specifically warns about putting hope in military might or uh, national leaders, political rulers. I think we can uh, relate to that. It, I, there was an election recently, and um, people were very divided, right? So some people were saying, if, if Hillary gets elected, there's no hope. And some people were saying, if Trump gets elected, there's no hope. Well, ultimately, neither one of those candidates has the kind, can give us, offer us the kind of hope that Jesus Christ does. So the Bible warns not to put your hope in earthly rulers. It warns not to put your hope in people at all. People are not the hope that we need. Jesus warned about putting your hope in false religion. He, he said to the Pharisees in John 5.45, I'm not the one who's going to judge you. Moses, who you have put your hope in, will judge you. So again, they, had no, they weren't born again. They didn't have their hope in Jesus. They had their hope in religion. And religion's not enough. So how do we get hope in our lives? How do we develop hope? We know that the hope is having Christ in our life and having eternal life. How do we develop that? Romans 15.4 says that everything that was written in the past, and he's, he's talking about the scriptures, the Bible, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that those so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So we can find hope in the Bible. That's why we always encourage you to be in the Bible. You know, an hour on Sunday is not enough. Uh, that, won't, that won't build your hope. Well, it can, but you need more. That's why uh, the church just went through um, the reading through the whole New Testament together. 
The word of God is powerful and it will impact your life and we find hope there. In Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. It's all about God's word. And five times in that psalm, the psalmist says, I have put my hope in your word. So again, it's God's word. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and I want to start with verse 13, and we'll read a few verses here, because it talks about hope. When God made his promise to Abraham, that's the promise that he would uh, give him the land of Israel, and he would have uh, descendants as the sand of the seashore, and that he made a special covenant with Abraham. Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, He swore by himself, that is God swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he promised, he confirmed it with an oath. So he told Abraham, I'm going to do this, but because he wanted to make it very clear, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, so the two unchangeable things are his word and his oath, his covenant. He, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. So this hope, the hope that comes from God's word, from his promises, is an anchor for our soul. What does an anchor do? Does an anchor keep the ship out of the storm? No, it doesn't. The storms will still come. The winds will still blow. The waves will still toss. But the boat is held secure by the anchor. And the hope that we find in God's word is an anchor for our soul. So when the storms of life come, and when you feel like, Uh, You're about to be blown away. God's word, the hope from God will anchor your soul. You might still get wet, and you might still be tired and hungry, but you have that hope, and you're not going to drift away. Now back to 1 Peter. He says that the new birth into a living hope is based on God's mercy. It's according to God's great mercy. Of course, that doesn't mean great like spectacular, although it is. It's quantity, great a mercy, abundant mercy. It's his abundant mercy. How, how abundant is God's mercy? Well, God is infinite, right? So all his attributes are infinite. His love is infinite. His justice is infinite. His holiness is infinite. His mercy is infinite. And we 
experience God's mercy every day. The fact that you're here now is proof that you experience God's mercy every day. So God in his infinite abundant mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope. And mercy is mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. Right? The Bible talks about grace. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. We get eternal life, which we don't deserve, through Christ. But mercy is like the other side of that coin. We don't get the judgment that we do deserve. So God's mercy is infinite. Titus 3, 3 through 5 says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So God saved us by his mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's why we're here on Sunday, right? Because of the resurrection. We celebrate Easter every Sunday. And if Christ hadn't raised from the dead, if he hadn't been raised from the dead, we would have no hope. But his resurrection is a guarantee that God will raise us too, if we're in Christ. So our hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know, the resurrection is unique to Christianity. No other religion has a resurrection. All right, some have reincarnation, but that's completely different. But no other, no other religion has their founder who was resurrected from the dead. No one even claims that. But our founder, the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead. And because of that, we have the hope of eternal life. And like I said, his resurrection is a pledge of ours. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if, if Christ is not raised, your faith is vain and you have no hope. But we do because of his resurrection. Then in verse 4 and 5, back in 1 Peter, we have a new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So this inheritance that God has waiting in heaven for us can never perish. That means it can't be ruined or destroyed or burn up. It can never be lost. It can never spoil which can mean like food spoils or rots, um, it won't decay, and it can never fade. So let's compare this inheritance in heaven. Let's say you inherited a house here on earth, and you kept it for several years. What would happen to the house? The paint would start to fade, the carpet would start to fade, um, 
termites might get in it, the wood starts to rot, you know, water damages everything. It's a constant battle. If you own a house, you know it's a constant battle to stop those things from happening. So earthly inheritances, they do. They perish, they spoil, they fade. But the one we have in heaven will never perish, spoil, or fade. And what else can happen to your earthly inheritance? Let's say you inherited like actual gold, a big pile of gold or a gold bar. That could be stolen, right? Or it could be lost. You'd think I would never lose a gold bar, but some people in here would lose a gold bar. I know, it was with my keys, wherever they are. Um, but the, the, the inheritance in heaven, it says it's kept in heaven by God. God is protecting our inheritance. No one can steal it, and it can't be lost. And then it says it's for you who through faith are shielded by God's power. So we don't have to uh, keep ourselves. Not only is God guarding our inheritance, but he's guarding us. That word shielded means guarded or protected like a fort, like an army or a general would would protect a fort, God is protecting us to get us there to receive our inheritance. It's not something we do. We're saved by faith, but we don't keep ourselves saved by works. God keeps us saved. He protects us. He guards us to get us safely home to heaven. And we're shielded through faith until the coming of salvation What does that mean? What does Peter mean by that? The coming of salvation. Uh, Salvation can be seen in three aspects, all right? Your salvation has a past aspect, a present aspect, and a future aspect. So in the past, we were saved from the penalty of sin. When you when you receive Christ as your Savior, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and give him your life, you're saved from the penalty of sin. You're no longer facing hell, an eternal punishment. You have eternal life. Now, in the present, we can be saved, and some days we are, or sometimes in some days, saved from the power of sin. So part of our salvation is being not a slave to sin anymore. So as we go through our lives and we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, we can experience that salvation from the power of sin. But someday, Peter says the salvation that's coming will be saved from the presence of sin. We'll be in heaven with Christ. There'll be no more sickness or sorrow or death. There'll be no more sin around us, no more temptation, uh, no more sin that tempts us or grieves us. We'll be free from that. And we're shielded until that day comes. Then verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice. In what? In what do you greatly rejoice? The new birth into the living hope. We greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So, Remember, Peter is writing to people who are persecuted. And he says, you greatly rejoice, even though you may have had to suffer some trials. So I'm going to talk about these trials. 
he, he says various kinds of trials. The word that's translated various kinds actually means many colored. So trials come like in all different forms and colors and shapes, right? Something that may be a trial to me, you might go, well, that's nothing, right? Uh, if your car breaks down, you know, to me that might be a trial. To you, it might be, eh, just got to get it fixed, just part of life. So not the same thing as a trial for everyone. Now the things that Christians were going through, the things I talked about with Nero, those are trials for everyone. But we all have trials, different kinds of trials. And Peter uses the word multicolored, which is very interesting because later in 1 Peter, in chapter 4, verse 10, he talks about God's grace. He uses the same word, multicolored grace of God. So God's grace is a match for any trial we have. It's there to help us through those trials. And our joy comes through, through the trials in spite of the trials. Okay, joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness depends on our circumstances. Like if the royals win today, we'll be happy. But if they lose, we can still have joy because joy doesn't depend on our circumstances. Joy, like hope, is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. We choose to be joyful because God commands us to. And we can do that because we have the hope that God has something better for us. All right, we know this is not all there is. If we go through a severe trial now, and I know some of you are facing very real trials. Maybe you have problems at work, relationship problems, health problems. I don't know, but I know there's some people in here who are facing some very real trials. We can have joy in the midst of those because we know God is working in our lives and we know the hope that someday we'll be in heaven and the trials will all be passed. So a couple of things he said, trials are temporary. He said they're just for a little while. And when these trials are going on, they might seem like they go on for a long time, but compared to eternity, it's just a little while. They won't last forever. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about what he calls a momentary light affliction. And he says it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory. So we have momentary light affliction, and that's contrasted to eternal weight, heavy, very heavy weight of glory that we'll receive for having gone through the trials. And then he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, which is the future. That's our hope. That's what we're looking for. And we have joy by knowing that God is in control. Uh, when those trials come, he's in control, and he won't allow anything to happen to us that is not his will, that he won't get us through, that he won't give us the grace to get through. And trials have a purpose. Verse 7 says, these have come, the trials that is, these have come so that your faith, which is of greater value than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the trials in your life have a purpose. 
They're not just random acts that just happen to happen and then God will get you through them. They are, act, they are things in your life that God allows or gives you for a specific purpose. And that is, there are a lot of purposes. Uh, Paul said his thorn in the flesh was to keep him humble. That's a purpose of trials. Uh, trials make us long for heaven and kind of lessen our love for this world. They can give us endurance. Uh, in Hebrews 12, it says you should think of all trials as discipline from God. And discipline doesn't mean punishment. But that's the kind of discipline that you should think of like from a coach. Everything, like when a coach makes you run, that's not punishment. That's to build your endurance. That's to help you be, mostly anyway, for most coaches. That's to help you be better at what you're doing. That's a kind of discipline. All trials we should look at as not God punishing us, but him disciplining, disciplining us to make us better, to make us more like Jesus. But Peter here gives the specific thing that the reason for the trial is to prove your faith. It proves your faith. And he talks about gold. It's gold will perish even though it's refined by fire. And in the ancient world, gold was the most valuable asset you could have. So he uses the most valuable thing that was available on earth, gold. But your faith, when it's proven, is more valuable than that. And testing proves your faith, but it doesn't prove it to God. God already knows you have faith. It proves it to you. So when you go through a trial and you have faith, you keep your faith in God and you come out on the other side, you look back and say, hey, that faith was real. That's real faith. That got me through that. God got me through that on my faith. So that's one reason for testing. And it will result in praise, honor, and glory. And the praise, honor, and glory he's talking about is not the praise, honor, and glory that will go to God. It's the praise, honor, and glory that you will get from God in heaven. When you get there and Jesus says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, when, when you're seated at his right hand, and he gives you territory to reign over like it talks about in uh, Matthew. And when, uh, when you have a glorified body that will be like Christ's. So getting through those trials will lead to praise, honor, and glory for you in eternity. And in Hebrews where it says uh, we should consider all those trials discipline, it says... No trial is pleasant at the time it happens. All right, again, back to you, if you think of that hope being the anchor for your soul, it doesn't prevent the winds, and it doesn't make you feel good about the winds. It just keeps you safe in the winds. And the rejoicing is for those who love and believe in Jesus. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the joy we have is inexpressible. That means above speech. We don't even have the words to explain it. And it's full of glory. It's filled with God's glory. It's energized by God's glory. And it says that 
we're receiving, verse 9, you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And that's where the joy comes from. So right now we are receiving the benefits of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Right now, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you're, you're saved. You're experiencing that right now. And whatever trial you're going through, whatever happens to your body, you're experiencing right now the salvation of your soul. Again, the past, present, and future of salvation. So uh, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now. And I just want to ask you to think about your hope. What is your hope in? Do you have Christ, the hope of glory, living in you? What are you putting your hope in? Is it something false? Are you putting your hope in riches? Are you putting your hope in money? Uh, in the government? Anything, like we saying earlier, uh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. So if your hope is in Christ, then I want, to, I want you to think about when you're, whatever trials you're experiencing, instead of focusing on the trial, to focus on that hope of eternal life with Jesus and focus on the fact that God is working in your life through those trials and that the hope that we're going to receive someday, the eternal life, will be even more glorious because of the trials we've gone through. Say one more thing. I just want to encourage you. Uh, let's all stand together now. And if, you, if you're struggling with trials or you're not sure of your hope of eternal life, I'd like to ask you to just come down here. Uh, Brady would be happy to talk to you. I'd be happy to talk to you and pray with you. Uh, if you're struggling with that, get that taken care of today. Thank you.